The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. we got a great episode for you today. Later on in the show, we're going to talk to Tom Pager, who's the chief security officer of Newstar. Tom has had a really interesting career, and I think many of you are going to find his career path quite fascinating. I know there's a lot of you out there uh, who are very interested in how people got to where they are today and some of the things and experiences that they have. So I'm going to ask him a little bit about those experiences, and then I'm going to dive into his views on the state of cybersecurity, uh, the proliferation of some nation-state attacks, and some of the recent breaches that have hit the news recently. But first, let's talk about some of the events that happened this week. So the Washington Post is reporting new revelations that in 2015, Israeli government hackers saw something suspicious in the computers of Moscow-based cybersecurity firm Kaspersky. What they saw were hacking tools that could only come from the National Security Agency of the United States. So a little bit about Kaspersky before we talk about this any further. Kaspersky makes antivirus software, and it sells it worldwide in the commercial market. It has about 400 million customers across the globe. According to the New York Times, who was first to report on the story, more than 60% or $374 million of the company's $633 million in annual sales comes from customers in the United States and Western Europe. So in other words, countries who would be very concerned with Russian spying operations targeting their classified systems. So among these customers are nearly two dozen American government agencies, including the State Department, the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, the Justice Department, the Treasury Department, and the Army, Navy, and Air Force. After Israeli intelligence services discovered the NSA tools on Kaspersky servers, Israeli officials notified the NSA of their findings, and NSA officials began to search for the cause of the breach, naturally. So according to the Washington Post, an investigation did indeed reveal that NSA hacking tools were in fact in possession of the Russian government. So last month, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security instructed federal civilian agencies to identify Kaspersky Lab software on their networks and remove it on the grounds that, and get this, the risk that the Russian government, whether acting on its own or in collaboration with Kaspersky, could capitalize on access provided by Kaspersky products to, in fact, compromise federal information and information systems directly implicated to United States national security. So lawmakers on Capitol Hill are considering a government-wide ban on Kaspersky products, too. And the New York Times claim that the NSA bans its analysts from using Kaspersky antivirus at the agency, in large part not because of this incident, but because the agency itself has exploited antivirus software for its own foreign hacking operations and knows the same technique is used by its adversaries. 
So now that, that sentence right there has gotten very little play in the media, but it's very interesting. But I haven't read too much about it at all other than what I just said. So as for the players involved, the NSA, the White House, the Israeli embassy, they all declined to comment on this Israeli discovery. But Kaspersky said in a statement that, quote, as a private company, Kaspersky does not have ties to any government, including Russia. And the only conclusion seems to be that Kaspersky Lab is caught in the middle of a geopolitical fight. The company also said, and I quote, it does not possess any knowledge of the Israeli hack and suggested that the hacking tools could have been picked up by the program after being identified as exactly what they are, hacking tools. So basically suggesting that that's what the software does. That's what the software is supposed to do. It's supposed to find hacking tools, obviously. So the NSA investigation determined that an NSA contractor linked to the NSA's Tailored Access Operations Unit, you might hear them called the TAO a lot, that's the agency's elite cyber warfare intelligence gathering unit in the NSA. That person worked there and was improperly downloading classified information onto his personal computer, which was compromised when he used Kaspersky antivirus software on his personal equipment. So apparently, the contractor didn't intend on stealing anything and didn't intend on passing data uh, to foreign adversaries or terrorist groups or anything like that. Uh, So far, that's what we know. But he just wasn't following procedures. And now, federal prosecutors are reviewing the facts of the case to see if they warrant federal charges against the NSA contractor. So even as the government investigates, the private sector has been saying for some time, and I've heard it for some time, uh, you know, many, many years ago, that the platform could be used for espionage because aside from just finding malware, the software has a function on the platform called silent signatures. And that platform conducts searches for specific keywords or acronyms on the computer that it's loaded on. So it could potentially target classified documents on the computers, on the networks that it's connected to. Um, it could target basically anything, but certainly it could be um, programmed to target classified documents, that any, anything that the software is given access to. So Kaspersky is, is, is the only antivirus firm whose data is routed through the Russian Internet service providers subject to Russian surveillance. So I don't think a lot of people know this. That surveillance system is known as the SORM, or the System of Operative Investigative Measures. Essentially, this is a system that ensures that Russia can read everything being routed through their pipes. Translation is, the Russian people and anyone who routes internet or telephonic traffic through Russia have zero privacy. Zero. The government monitors everything, and they pretty much own your butt. So we're going to get into this probably in the next episode or the the episode after because it speaks to the power of encryption and privacy and all those types of things we're kind of dealing with here in the United States. But the company countered those uh, observations by stating that customer data flowing through Kaspersky's Russian servers is encrypted and that the firm does not decrypt it for the Russian government. However, some other people, some other experts had something to say about that. There was a Russian surveillance expert named Andrei Soldatov, and he's also the author of the book The Red and Web. 
said that I would be very, very skeptical of the claim that the government cannot read the firm's data. As an entity that deals with encrypted information, Kaspersky must obtain a license from the FSB, the country's most powerful security service, which means your company is completely transparent to the FSB. So in doing some more research on the SORM, I learned that the FSB is not the only government agency in Russia that has access to traffic over Russian networks, as if the FSB wasn't bad enough already. So it's not publicly known how the Russians obtained the NSA hacking tools in 2015. Some information uh, security analysts have speculated that the Russians exploited a flaw in Kaspersky's software to put the habeas gravis on the material. I mean... I don't know. You don't need that much of an imagination to figure out what happened here, I think. I mean, th- that was quickly rebuked by other security experts. Obviously, you simply point out the fact that the information could have been picked up through the country's surveillance regimen. I mean, come on. Stephen Hall, who ran the CIA's Russian operation for 30 years, said the firm is likely to be beholden to the Kremlin. He said Kaspersky's line of work is particular interest to Russian President Vladimir Putin, and that's because of the way things work in Russia. Eugene Kaspersky, quote-unquote, knows he's at the mercy of Putin, he added. This comes from a guy who ran CIA's Russian operation for 30 years. (laughs) So I did some research when I found out that At the age of 16, Kaspersky entered a five-year program with the technical faculty of the KGB Higher School, which prepared intelligence officers for the Russian military and the KGB. He graduated in 1987 with a degree in mathematical engineering and computer technology. After graduating the college, Kaspersky served in the Soviet military intelligence service as a software engineer, and he even met his first wife at a KGB vacation resort. So in case you're wondering, Putin was also a KGB foreign intelligence officer for 16 years, rising to the rank of lieutenant colonel before retiring in 1991 to enter politics in St. Petersburg. So it would seem that it could be all in the family over there at Kaspersky. I mean, could one actually imagine a situation where Kaspersky tells Putin, oh, no, you can't see the stuff I'm collecting. No way. Ain't happened. Or, no, 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 I'm not going to search that data for you, Mr. Putin. No way. Yeah. Right. Give me a break. If you want to know how cybersecurity professionals think, here's a good example. So I was on LinkedIn the other day, and I was having a chat with some folks. You know, some of your everyday cybersecurity folks just chatting it out about this news. And I stated something like, this makes you wonder about all the other software that's on your computer. If it, you know, if this is compromised, possibly, then maybe the other software is possibly compromised as well. Dr. Jim Kennedy, a cybersecurity consultant, chimed in and he said, unfortunately, any firm from Russia is obligated to do the bidding of the FSB and Putin. Let's not be naive. <laughs> and it made me chuckle, made me laugh, right? Another friend of mine, uh, Richard Perry, an old friend from J.P. Morgan Chase, who runs Perry Advisory now. He said, the only thing that should be shocking about this is that anyone should be shocked at all. (laughs) The Russians did what you expect them to. Whether Kaspersky are guilty of malice or ignorance is irrelevant. 
The infrastructure is vulnerable, and still we fast-track new innovations for us to become dependent upon that ride a backbone we have yet to demonstrate we can defend. But hey, new news. I mean, get this. The Germans say there's nothing going on, and they're good to go with Kaspersky. There's nothing to worry about. Reuters is reporting that German authorities are saying that there's no need to panic. The BSI has no indications at this time that the process occurred as described in the media. Germany's BSI, which also uses Kaspersky products for technical analysis, said it had no evidence to back media reports that Russian hackers used Kaspersky Lab antivirus software to spy on U.S. authorities. And I quote, There are no plans to warn against the use of Kaspersky products since the BSI has no evidence for misconduct by the company or weaknesses in its software. End of quote. BSI said this in an email response to questions about the latest media reports. So Germany's BSI Federal Cyber Agency said that they have been in touch with U.S. officials and other security agencies about the issue, so it could take action and issue a warning on short notice if required. So I don't get it. The Israelis say there's a problem. United States officials conducted their investigations, and U.S. officials say there's a problem. The Germans talk to them both, and they come to the conclusion that, the conclusion that th- th- there's no problem. <laughs> I mean, there has to be more to this than that's actually being revealed. So I hope to uh, find out more about this. But the, uh, the, the German government officials did offer the fact and did say that the, they, their agencies could use other software protection for their clients and servers that is offered by CanCom and works together with Trend Micro. Why would they even say that if they weren't concerned? I don't know. And then there were some others playing down the revelations from the New York Times as well. According to Bloomberg, if you're not an interesting target to governments, it makes no sense to react to retailers and other antivirus producers' offers to replace Kaspersky products on your computer systems. For one thing, the article said the replacement, too, could be compromised, perhaps by Russian intelligence as well. (sighs) Okay. This doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. So you're saying don't replace the software product that your government is advising its own agencies has security concerns with another software product because that product may have unknown security concerns. I mean, what are we talking about here? I don't get it. I feel like that's saying don't replace your flat tire because the other one you put on could get a flat toe. So the Bloomberg article does go on and says another reason that it doesn't really matter what antivirus software you use is that if you're not an NSA analyst or the keeper of important trade or military secrets, then who really cares? Who cares? I think some people might. I mean, I guess so people shouldn't mind if the Russian government has access to their military records or employment information. Maybe they store their health records on their computers, their financial information, political affiliations, their marriage status. All targets if they wanted to target. Now, I'm not saying this is what the Russian government is targeting. I'm not saying that. You know, I'm saying, obviously, they were looking for classified information with specific keyword searches in this instance. But by all accounts, they could if they wanted to. All of which could be used for a variety of different nefarious purposes, including fraud, blackmail, and influencing U.S. elections. Please say it ain't so. Now, Bloomberg correctly asserts 
in the article, in my opinion, that consumers are typically more worried about criminal organizations than nation states meddling in their affairs, and that's very true. But anyone who doesn't think that the Russian government is in colluding with powerful Russian cyber-organized crime groups and even consenting and facilitating their activities clearly doesn't understand the threat actor landscape. This is all one conversation. It's not two conversations. So I think the decision on whether or not to download AV software on these platforms really depends on your own individual risk tolerance. So whether it's Linux or the Chrome OS... Mac OS, iOS, Android, and I know the statistics. Once you educate yourself on the emerging threats out there and you bump that up against you know, what kind of data that you have on your computer and the risk tolerance of someone actually getting access to that data, that's going to drive your personal decision. So the use of AV software by intelligence agencies got even more attention recently when revelations were made by the New York Times once again that in September of 2016, North Korean cyber intelligence services stole a huge batch of classified U.S. and South Korean military plans from South Korean servers, including a plan to assassinate North Korea's dictator Kim Jong-un and other top government officials. So according to Vox.com, a South Korean politician made this pronouncement that last fall, North Korean hackers gained access to South Korea's Defense Integrated Data Center and stole 235 gigabytes of classified military plans. So there was two plans that really stuck out in particular. One was a plan for how to respond to an attack on South Korea by North Korean commandos, which I think was probably pretty important. And the other one was the plan for what's called a quote-unquote decapitation strike or an operation that would specifically target Kim and other key government officials loyal to the regime for assassination. But the full depth of what was stolen is still really unknown. A large chunk, about I think 70 to 80 percent of the 235 gigabytes is, is still unknown what was actually left the building. It turns out that while we've been focused on North Korea's nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles, the country has been quietly developing a cyber weapon cache of malware and malicious code. The Wall Street Journal reports the North Korean hackers first gained access to the South Korean company that makes the antivirus software used by the South Korean military. Sound familiar? It sounds familiar. That compromised antivirus software provided a path for North Korean hackers into South Korean military computers. So normally the military database that they hacked was working on a secured intranet and it would be safe from compromise. But a contractor apparently was working at the data center and left a cable in place that connected the military intranet to the internet, allowing the North Korean hackers to access the database of sensitive documents. And that connection remained in place for more than a year and wasn't detected until September of 2016. North Korean state media denied involvement in the attack, claiming instead that the South Koreans just made up the whole thing. (laughs) It's time to take a break. We'll be back after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you 
finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back from the break, everyone. I'm excited to introduce our next guest. I've known him for a very long time, and he's a dear friend of mine. He's a total rock star in the cybersecurity community. He's the chief security officer and chief risk officer of New Star, Tom Pager. Welcome to the show, brother. Hey, thanks for having me, George. Good to talk to you again. Hey, thanks for being on. So you and I go way back. We're, uh, we're Secret Services agents together back in the day. So, yeah, uh, you know, we've good times, right, when we were first just getting into the cyber world. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, you basically helped me get through my first forensic class. <laughs> <laughs> so you know i had to figure out who the smartest guy in the class was so that i could pass so you know tom was uh willing to uh, help me out so um no i appreciate that and uh you know never forget that so we've known each other for a long time you've led quite the storied career uh from that point on um and i you know i'd like to talk about it a little bit because i think it's very interesting some of the things that you've done so prior to new star you served as the chief risk officer and chief information security officer of docusign how was that experience well, DocuSign was uh, quite interesting because uh, when I joined, it was uh, it was just starting to explode. Uh, you know, DocuSign does electronics. Two hundred people when I joined. Um, I was there three years. We were up to twenty-two hundred people. I think it was about five hundred two months after I joined. So just explosive growth. Lots of very interesting stuff, and we were protecting everything you can imagine. So everybody signed. Everybody signed medical. Documents, sign legal documents, you sign finance documents, you buy your houses through it. So the um, the just the absolute uh, um, need to protect everything you can ever think of was the DocuSign. So it was just a great experience, especially in a high growth. Yeah. 
Awesome. So before that, you also worked at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. You and I worked together over there. Uh, you were the deputy CISO of the security department. What's it like to work for the largest cyber or largest financial institution in the United States in the cybersecurity capacity? I mean, it's a very coveted job, right? I mean, a lot of people would love to have that type of opportunity. Yeah, George, you were there with me at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. And uh, what's just amazing about those opportunities are that you're working for the largest financial institution in the United States, unlimited, I mean, not unlimited, but basically unlimited budget. So you're, you're going to get the best of breed of everything. You're going to have, you know, multiple vendors helping you with monitoring. You're going to have the best in distributed denial service attack uh, protection. You're going to have the best people because you can recruit running your security operations center. So it's a great place to go to learn a lot and get those fundamentals to develop because you're going to get to experience everything you have the best talent. And then that transitions really well when you go into a smaller company like DocuSign, you know, which is big now, but was small when I was going in there. You don't have those unlimited resources and you've got to say, okay, what worked best at that big financial institution? You know, that was, you know, government backed, basically, you know, critical infrastructure doing the best breed. How can I take those lessons learned and take the best things and apply it? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's definitely two different, two different companies, two different opportunities there, right? And it's a, it, there's a difference on your 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 way of thought, the culture, your 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 thinking. Before that, before J.P. Morgan Chase, you served as the global head of risk at Visa. That was your first job in the private sector, coming out of the government. How'd you find that transition? Uh, you know, v- Visa. Uh, two things: one, coming out of the government to private, very uh, very different. Uh, you 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 know. I uh, was kind of afraid I wouldn't have that sense of mission that we had in the Secret Service. Uh, found it to be actually the opposite, as running you know the largest payment system in the world, keeping it secure. And then you know the difference between Visa and Chase. At Chase, you and I were protecting uh, the Chase employees, you know the Chase customers. At Visa, we were we were protecting more of the largest payment system in the world. So we just had to make sure that that payment system was always going. So we were creating things like the Payment Card Industry Security Standards (PCI) (SSC). That came out of a program that we had there. Uh, we were putting rules out there to make sure the processors, the issuers, all played nicely. You know, the, the merchants did things right. So it was, it was a really interesting way to take a holistic approach uh, and make sure that the largest payment system in the world had the best controls in place and was always available and secure. So finally, you and I, we mentioned that we worked together in the Secret Service. That's where we met. You were in San Francisco. I was in, uh, I was in Newark. New Jersey, and on, on top of this, and on top of everything, you also hold a prestigious, sought-after Harvard.edu email address that only Harvard graduates get. So, an unbelievable education, a remarkable career. It seems you're just getting going. Tell us what you're doing at New Star now. Uh, New Star is a, a very awesome company. It's uh, it's actually very old. A lot of people don't know this, but you use New Star every day. Uh, we were a Lockheed Martin spinoff back in '97, and basically, we run the porting of phones. So, when you want to uh, take your phone and you know, change servers. Uh, like, so if you're with Verizon, you want to go to AT&T and take that number with you, we make sure that happens. And also, if you're on a Verizon phone, you call someone on an AT&T phone, you actually go through uh, Newstar. Like, basically, it calls up Newstar and says, okay, who, who does this phone number belong to? Belongs to AT&T, and then it ports you over. So it's interesting. It's a company that everybody uses every, every day, but they don't really realize it. On top of that, we offer security services. So we do distributed denial of service protection. We do DNS, DNS security. Uh, we also do marketing, marketing services. We, we help people identify who their customers are. 
So it's a really interesting company because we basically see about 10% of all internet. Uh, we just have so many uh, top-level domains. We also do registry. Like .biz is owned by us and managed by us. Um, we manage uh, like .au for Australia, .co for Colombia. Just some, some really interesting um, views, overviews of the world, basically the whole way everything's interacting, you know, from phone services to internet service. So for me, it's such a great career um, progression because, you know, like I said, DocuSign was that whole e-signature and protecting every type of data you could ever imagine. Now at Newstar, I'm actually seeing how all the data transverses throughout the world. So it's just an awesome, unbelievable opportunity from the cybersecurity perspective to get there. And as I said, we also do do security products such as DDoS um, uh, mitigation, uh, secure DNS, um, actually some fraud scoring, you know, uh, risk areas. So really um, everything that my career has been about, you know, risk, cybersecurity, availability, all that coming together in one area is pretty, pretty uh, interesting. So finally, I just want to mention that you started your own venture capital fund called Reg Dog Capital with none other than my good friend Ed Kim, who I was just hanging out with in San Francisco recently. How's that going for you? Are you guys looking to fund cybersecurity startups specifically? What kind of companies are you uh, analyzing? Yeah, I joined uh, Red, Do- Red Dog uh, with a, a group of uh, individuals I know, Ed Kim, as you know, really good guy, um, and then some other friends, uh, a lot of them from DocuSign. And uh, we do invest in uh, various areas, uh, but most of them with a technology angle. Uh, and then specifically, a uh, good portion is in the enterprise security space. And for me, that's what I focus on. And we're constantly looking at new uh, technologies. Uh, there's a company called Crypto Move that we're really excited about that we, uh, we're, we're helping. And they're just now doing their Series A. And what they do is kind of metamorphic encryption. So basically, the data is always moving. So if you want to decrypt the data, you can't ever put the data together. It also offers like business continuity management and disaster recovery because it's constantly making copies of itself. So if you have something... Uh, go wrong, you can. it'll automatically have another copy. And it's seeming to defeat the ransomware attacks because basically um, ransomware uh, doesn't work because if you want to encrypt on top of the encryption, it doesn't allow it and it notifies the user. So really interesting technology there we're, we're having a lot of fun with. A couple other companies in there in that portfolio, but uh, really, really good stuff, exciting stuff. And I think you know the guys at Crypto Move, and I think they're going to be uh, members of this uh, radio show in the future anyway. So, uh, like I said, really fun to just get in there and uh, really uh, identify these emerging companies. Uh, In addition to that, I'm also on the advisory board for Bain Capital. So, Bain is a big VC, and they do a lot of uh, uh, security work. So, just, you know, being part of Silicon Valley here and getting to see the new and emerging technologies is a lot of fun. Also help out a couple other VC firms, just kind of getting some ideas, seeing what the new and emerging technologies are. So, you know, look really on the pulse of everything uh, between the job at Newstar, working with the VCs, and being in Silicon Valley. <laughs> so you have a few things going on. You're kind of busy. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, that's great. That's great. So, look, I want to get your opinion about a bunch of topics today. Um, we've been focusing on nation-state attacks and cyber warfare over the first few episodes of the show. Just a few comments. Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. Uh, th- these these co- these countries are routinely launching cyber attacks against government entities. They're routinely launching cyber attacks against foreign military inst- installations. Private companies around the world are getting hit. And I think, in my opinion, it's for the sole purpose of undermining their operations of all these entities. And it's to promote their own interests through propaganda. I mean, the network of Russians that have been deployed to promote digital sabotage and to influence the perceptions and opinions of people who are not like-minded to them. It's just like what happened during our presidential election, actually, is enormous. It's impressive. 
And it's something that requires a public conversation and it, it requires a dialogue. And that's why I'm bringing it up today on the show. And ultimately, a, a coordinated government strategy to, to deal with this problem. So um, I know re- recently, uh, former director of national intelligence, James Clapter, has testified in front of Congress that Russia has gauged, engaged in a quote unquote multifaceted campaign against the United States, adding that the Russian government has been, quote, very, very active in promoting a particular point of view, disparaging our system and our alleged hypocrisy about human rights. So I'm going to ask you a question, and, and I get a, a whole bunch of different answers, and then provokes a lot of uh, emotions and opinions from guests, depending on their uh, backgrounds and experiences. But are we engaged in a cyber war right now with other nation states? Well, you know, I, I think that there's cyber espionage going on at all time. I don't know if it's necessarily a war yet, because the wars need to be declared. I think definitely cyber espionage is going on, and I think it's similar to the Cold War of the 1980s, right? Uh, it was lots of spies in the different countries checking for things, trying to get information on each other. And I think what we're seeing is um, just a constant cyber espionage going, and, and things that could possibly become acts of war, but there's no like formal war being declared. And I think it's on all sides. It's not just, you know, all those countries you mentioned, but you also look at, you know, the Iranian nuclear program and how that was derailed, right? Um, you know, obviously there's, there's um, lots of disruption and cyber attacks, cyber espionage going on among, amongst all sides. And then, you know, more recently, the election stuff that we're seeing, uh, I'm sure with the, um, the issues heating up in the uh, Korean Peninsula, you know, with North Korea and everything, we're going to see more and more around that. I am, I'm absolutely positive that there's, you know, uh, at least cyber attack attempts happening, cyber cyber espionage happening um, from multiple sides. So I would agree, right? Espionage is not war, right? And so we haven't really defined what's acceptable and not acceptable to, uh, to us. I don't think, well, and none of these attacks are really acceptable, but what defines sort of an act of war that would require a response uh, on our part. So with everything going on in Asia and with all the tensions with North Korea, should we be at a heightened state of alert right now and from a cybersecurity perspective? I mean, you mentioned North Korea. If this escalates into war, should we expect a flood of cybersecurity attacks, not only in our government, but on private sector companies as well? Yeah, I, I think that uh, cyber attacks are part of uh, warfare now. I mean, I, we've seen that, um, you know, even uh, – when anybody's going in, like uh, uh, when Georgia was attacked by Russia, there was a massive attack on uh, the Internet and the telco was basically taken out. We, we, uh, we actually do it. If you look at it, when we do attacks in uh, you know, either like cities in Iraq or Afghanistan, there's usually uh, some type of uh, cyber attack that pre, uh, preemptive to it, right? So you want to take out everyone's telecommunications. You want to take out the, you know, you want to take out the enemy's ability to communicate. So I think it's just part of war. So I think that if we start to see things escalate, we're going to see more of that. I also think that it's um, it's happening every day. I mean, we just saw the Equifax breach, you know, um, that just happened. It was, you know, in July. It was just, this is, uh, came to light this week. Um, you know, we don't know who's behind that. And I think there's a blurred line. We've got, you know, cyber criminals and we've got nation state actors. And I think that there are um, probably players on both sides. Uh, if I'm, you know, if I'm... Um, you know, helping my nation state, but I'm also uh, you know, part of an organized crime ring in that country, I can easily start, uh, you know, attacking on behalf of my country. But on top of that, now I've got ability to get in places. So maybe I'm going to make some money on the side as I do it. So I think we're going to see some blurred lines. I think we're seeing some stuff happening. We also see a lot of um, methods of attack developing from 
known nation-state attacks, you know, such as the, you know, uh, basically the attack in Iran to derail the nuclear um, uh, power plant, you know, the whole thing. Basically, now we start seeing derivatives coming in the, into the private sector. And even more recently with the ransomware attacks, you know, it started in Ukraine. It's got a lot of signs of being part of a nation-state attack. But those private entities working in Ukraine did get infected, and then we saw it spread throughout Europe. Now, maybe, maybe it was always just a, you know, uh, a criminal attack to disrupt private entities, or that was a nation-state you know, espionage attack or something that spread in the private sector. So I think the lines are so blurred that we just can't even separate them at this point. All right. So we're going to be bumping up against a commercial break here in a minute. So I, I think we're going to take some time to uh, go ahead and do that. We'll be right back with our guest and my good friend, the chief security officer of New Star, Tom Pager. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back from the break, everyone. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity, and we're going to continue our conversation with the Chief Security Officer at Newstar, Tom Pagler. Tom, we were talking about uh, some of uh, the nation-state attacks that happened recently. We're also talking about uh, some of the, the tools and tactics and procedures that they were using. How important it is to know the TTPs of your adversary? I mean, I don't think Sony... Uh, uh, or thought that Unit 120 of the North Korean Army was their adversary when they put together their information security strategy, right? And I totally get that. I totally understand why they didn't, obviously, right? The learning moment here is that we all have to change our way of thinking. I know that we have a great deal of experience running 
uh, cyber intelligence operations. You and I have done uh, a lot of that in our careers together, actually. How important is intelligence in the cybersecurity lifecycle? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, extremely important. I think there's uh, multiple ways the private sector needs to get involved. Uh, I think we're seeing more and more private sector industry doing that. Uh, I think that we're seeing people going from government into private. I think private is actually, you know, actively recruiting people with the skills that you and I have, George, coming from the Secret Service. And I, I think that private sector, as we're seeing more of these things, like you mentioned the Sony breach, and I mentioned Equifax earlier, as these things happen, people, um, private sector leaders are learning, we need to know really what our adversaries are. And areas I think they can do it is there are very good um, intelligence firms out there that can be hired. Uh, I don't want to name all of them, but, you know, those in the community know who to talk to. Um, And they're very good at monitoring the underground, giving, you know, uh, basically heads up on threats that are coming. And a lot of them work with government and private, so they see both sides. There's also the information sharing and analysis centers. They're called the ISACs. For each industry. So for us, you know, George, we're part of FSISAC, the financial services ISAC. There's a national healthcare one. There's an IT one. There's aviation one. And these are actually uh, government-sponsored organizations that allow uh, private sector to get together, get actual briefings, get some security clearances, um, and actually share information amongst each other. And finally, I'd say CERT is really important. There's a computer emergency response team. It's housed out of Carnegie Mellon University. I actually teach at Carnegie Mellon, so I'm out there quite a bit. And honestly, it's a really good um, program because it's actually not just U.S. focused. It's, it's worldwide focused, you know, partnering with Carnegie Mellon University. And you've got people from the FBI, the Secret Service, U.S. Postal Service, uh, international law enforcement, Interpol, all sitting there working together with private sector. So, you know, really definitely getting into that cyber intelligence world and knowing what's happening is really important if you're an um, Internet-facing company or someone with critical infrastructure or, or just anything that um, you need to protect for your customers. So keeping in, in the, the nation-state uh, cyber warfare conversation, what nations have the most advanced cyber warfare capabilities in your opinion right now? Uh, and probably I'm going to be, uh, you know, obviously I'm in the United States. I think we're probably number one. I mean, we've got uh, the most resources. We've got some of the biggest companies in here. You know, we just got so much bandwidth. So I think the United States probably number one. Uh, number two, and it could also be approaching number one, would be Israel. I think Israel is, uh, you know, they just invested so heavily in uh, cybersecurity. They also require all their citizens to serve in uh, military. So every one of their citizens uh, basically has worked for the government at some point, and it's pretty much cleared, so they can actually work much more closely with their private and public security. I think behind that would probably be uh, Russia, just because I think that Russia is really good at espionage, uh, having gone through the Cold War, and they just have a better setup. I, I also think um, there is a pretty good uh, organized crime group that kind of came as, as the wall fell down in Russia, and a lot of them were prior government and then got back into government. So I think you have a little bit more blurred lines there, so better resources. And I think China is up there. Uh, you know, I might be underestimating China just because they're so quiet and, and closed. Uh, I think what China does uh, actually really well is they, they kind of uh, seem to test things on themselves first and then go out. So there's a lot of stuff that's done behind closed doors in China because I think they perfect things before they go out, which makes it difficult to know where they, how advanced they are. And then I think what you get is like the Irans and North Koreas together because they're basically kind of backed into a corner. They're never going to compete with the United States uh, or anybody else. 
you know, pound for pound with weapons. I mean, obviously they're trying to get like a nuclear weapon, but like, you know, they're going to get one and they're not even sure it's going to actually do any, you know, how it will do. They can't afford too much stuff, you know? So basically if they can invest in the cybersecurity, that's something that anybody can get into. Um, you know, you basically, you don't even have to own the computers. You could go steal it. You can go steal bandwidth. You just need the, the expertise and the people. So I think those countries like Iran and North Korea invest pretty heavy in there and get themselves up there. So what do you think the differences are in the way Russia and China conduct their cyber warfare operations? I mean, in terms of, you know, tactics and tools and, and motives. And my experience has been that uh, Russia has got more of a... Uh, history of uh, being kind of a, a dominant, you know, uh, player in, in a, in a very politically tense situation. And so they've learned to be more public facing kind of uh, out there, you know, running really strong espionage groups, you know, spying. Um, also there's a lot of, um, you know, as the wall fell down, there was a lot of organized crime that came up. And I, I think that uh, there was money made um, through cyber attacks. So Russia's kind of more um, public-facing, forward-looking. Then you get, now with China, it's been uh, you know an emerging company that's been a country, sorry, emerging country that's been coming up, and definitely behind more of a closed door. Um, you know, it is a communist uh, country that has pretty good control of their citizens. But they haven't really been in a in a very public facing situation, at least with like you know the United States or one of the bigger um, you know countries. It's just, it's just been kind of growing on their own and becoming much stronger. Um, but I think what they do is they take a much more non public approach, perfect some things, um, very calculated. I think that they um, wa- don't want to advertise what they can and can't do well. Because what they want to do is really have the element of surprise should they ever do anything. So I want to talk a little bit about the um, the active defense, and we have a lot of con- we've had some conversations here on, on some previous uh, shows in terms of uh, explaining why we can't uh, attack back some of these computers that are attacking us, even when we know where the attack is coming from. Um, and so I not only want to talk about the complexity around the decision on whether or not to retaliate against a, an attacking node, right? But from a moral and ethical standpoint, I, we, I think we've spoken about that before. But given our background as, as, as Secret Service agents, I also want to talk about it from a legal standpoint so our listeners understand exactly why this is illegal and, and not permitted. So let me give you a scenario, and I'll talk about the state of New Jersey only because I have some experience in law enforcement there. There are laws in the state of New Jersey that clearly outline the right to self-defense. So in simple terms, if someone comes up to me on the street and attacks me, I have the right to defend myself. And in that right, use only the force necessary to deter the attack. So in other words, if someone shows me to the ground, I, I, I can't come up and use lethal force against that person. Right? It's commonsensical. These are commonsensical laws, and, and, and they make a, uh, you know, people don't even read them and they follow them because it, it just makes sense. right? But I can still defend myself only using the force necessary to protect my life and property. So there are no self-defense statutes like that when it comes to cyber attacks. If someone gives you the equivalent of a cyber punch in the mouth right now, you just have to take it. And your only recourse is to really report it to law enforcement, right? You can't, there's no defending yourself in that sense other than, you know, maybe when we we talk about defense and cybersecurity, it's, you know, closing vulnerabilities and and mitigating gaps and things like that. Um, What do you think about that? 
It, the difference in cybersecurity is you get punched in the face, but it might be like in a dark alleyway, and you turn around and there's seven people there. You just punch one of them back, hoping that's the one that you think it is, because maybe what happened is you know you hit the wrong person. Or even more uh, an analogy would be, honestly, takes another person and punches you in the face with their fist, because that's what actually happens. A lot of times they take over someone else's computer, data from them, and then tax someone else with that computer. So now you're double victimizing someone. So I've been, you know, I've basically been, you know, punched, hit in the head. And then as I'm kind of unconscious, they take my fist and punch someone else in the face. And then that person retaliates and hits me again. And that's the issue we have with cybersecurity. It's not easy to go and find out actually who hit you. And often there's um, retaliation can actually just double victimize somebody. So that's a really good example. I always use the example of, you know, it could be a, a computer being used as a proxy in a hospital that people depend on, you know, medical care and, and things like that. And if you attack that computer, you could put people's lives in danger. And it's not even the person who attacked you, right? So, and, and, it, and it's good to have these discussions so that people understand why there's limitations and why things are so challenging. I think even if you were able to identify the computer, uh, the attacking computer, and even if you knew that the attacker was at the keyboard, and even if you did forensics on your computers and had, you know, um, access to that person's uh, logon information through their forensics that you knew was in a Dropbox or something, you still cannot go out and get that information. 18 U.S.C. 1030 uh, is specifically defines that whoever intentionally accesses a computer without authorization or exceeds authorized access. Uh, and, and thereby attains information from a protected computer is, is commits the offense, right? So the term protected computer means a computer which is used in or affecting interstate or foreign commerce or communication, including a computer located outside the United States. So it clearly defines that, you know, this is not allowed. And so legally, you know, we're not even permitted to do that, uh, even if you're able to identify uh, the attacking computer. So, I mean, uh, obviously you and I are not attorneys, but we're in, down in law enforcement a long time. We know the rules. So um, I think people would find it at least uh, informative to know why uh, companies aren't able to, you know, act in, in a way to protect themselves or get their information back uh, when these things happen to them. Well, I think you have a good point there too, is uh, um, we need more regulation or a better response team of some sort. Because as you said, um, if you can identify and say, okay, I really do know this computer, you know, we don't have a really standardized way of that happening. Like, you know, how do we know that um, this company did identify and can, without a doubt, prove that that is the computer that hit them, right? And, and, and consistently do that. So we need to get something that can do that. We need some kind of like regulation or some kind of group that we call. Maybe it's some kind of like, maybe it is a government slash private sector uh, organization that you can come in and say, I got attacked, believe this is it. They can look at it and say, yeah, we verify it is, and now you can go retaliate. There's something like that has to come because the issue is we start making those decisions. What if we're wrong at some point, right? Even if um, uh, we, we believe 100% and we go take out someone else, and then, you know, uh, I'll just give a horrible example. Uh, we've had a lot of attacks lately um, you know, for distributed denial of service. So obviously, at Newstar, we do a lot of that. And a lot of the devices that are, are um, in the attack are uh, IoT devices, Internet of Things devices. So they're basically devices that just work out of the box. They're online. Some of them are medical devices. 
So if you absolutely can, can you know, you're hundred percent sure this is the IP address that came from all this stuff and you go attack and blow up this thing and it turns out to be you know, something that's distributing insulin to a diabetic child and you made this decision and did this and really thought it was okay, and then it turns out someone actually suffers death because of it, who's responsible there? So at least if you get a group that can actually review these quickly or some kind of response and say, okay, we do believe this is, and they can confirm what that device is or something like that, we will at least start to have less of those issues. So that's where the, the moral kind of comes in. This is where the things aren't clear because we've seen over and over and over that devices do get you know compromised. Now, there are other areas we can go to. We could say, hey, devices on the Internet have to be secured. So basically, manufacturers cannot allow devices on there that are easily compromised, such as IoT devices are now. Or you know, if you do have a homegrown computer, you know, your own computer or your corporation, and you are you know, taken over and then it's used in a crime against someone else, you are going to be held responsible. Because you know, you know, if I have a gun in my house, I'm supposed to keep that under you know, lock and key and keep it safe. If I let somebody else come and get it and you know, I, I, don't, you know, I leave it out in the street and some kid picks it up and hurts themselves with it, I'm going to get sued for that. And it's because I didn't take the responsibility to go lock that up. That was dangerous. And I think we need to start thinking about that, too, that there's just got to be a minimum standard of protection of these things that can become dangerous. So you and I both uh, worked uh, in an investigative capacity with the Secret Service. From an, an investigations perspective, is our government organized properly to fight cybercrime? Originating from any any one of the cyber threat actor taxonomy actors, of course, like any one of the actors. So, I mean, if just from the investigations perspective, are are we organized properly to to uh, respond to these incidents and investigate these attacks? I I don't I don't know. That's a difficult question because I I think that where we have the issue is we have an investigative capacity and then we have uh, an offensive capacity, right? So we have like, which is just basically supposed to just protect us as though um, they're protecting air, you know, like land, sea, you know, air, and then space as in cyberspace, right? So we, we rely on our military. That really shouldn't be an investigation. That should be a, you know, is critical infrastructure getting attacked and how we're going to retaliate? The investigation is more when you think of like the FBI, the Secret Service, that kind of stuff. And it's like actually trying to figure out who's doing this, get some kind of case together, and then maybe make some arrests or at least give some advice to those who have this offensive capabilities within the government. I think that that's just probably not um, 100% there yet. I, I, you know, I mean, clearly, um, if there's an investigation going on and there is a belief that there's a terrorist attack imminent, believe me, the military is going to know really quickly. Law enforcement is going to be engaged. People are going to go do it. When it's a cyber attack, it doesn't happen the same way. We just don't treat it the same way. If, if someone tries to smuggle a nuclear weapon into the U.S., and, you know, it comes up in an investigation or in a military you know, um, they, they, they're going to communicate so quickly with everybody and, and, and respond to that. We just don't do the same with cyber yet. All right. We only have a couple minutes left. I want to try to squeeze in uh, one last question. You know, how has cyberspace changed the game in terms of how world powers interact with each other? I mean, even countries who are not considered world powers, has cyberspace changed their standing in the world and how they're able to communicate and bargain and, and, in terms of their political stature with other countries? Yeah, I think absolutely. It was a uh, you know briefly talked when we mentioned you know North Korea and Iran. Uh, they're able to take a stand now a little bit more than they would before. If we didn't have the cyber space like we do, um, those with the most money would always win because they're going to have the most ability to buy smart bombs and do things like that, right? I mean, a, a bomb is you know a million dollars plus. So if you're a, a country that's not that big, you just Big weapons. You can't afford air force, um, aircraft carriers. You can't afford a big military. 
but you can afford an education and some computers. And it only takes a few computers and some connections to take over more computers. And honestly, you could take over the computers of the strongest ones. So if you're smart enough and you do cyber attacks right, not only do you take over their computers, but their computers are now controlling part of their military or part of their critical infrastructure. So I do think cybersecurity uh, or cyber, the, this the whole cyber landscape, the cyber espionage, cyber warfare landscape is allowing smaller players to be uh, more dominant. And we All right, we're going to have to espionage. Oh, sorry. We're going to have to cut it there, brother. We're, we're pretty much okay. out of time. But I uh, look, I appreciate you coming on. Um, you know, I hope you come on often. So, when, you know, when, when you come out to back out to New York, make sure you bring Dave Pickett with you. <laughs> I see, I see, I see and, he's uh, the chief compliance officer now over there. So uh, he's, he's, he's big time. Tell him he's buying at Del Frisco's when you guys come out. <laughs> I will. And uh, Dave was also Secret Service with us. So it'll be a lot of fun to get the three of us together again. Absolutely. So that does it for this episode of Task Force 7 Radio. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week. We'll have another exciting, informative show for you. Just a reminder, every episode is available for replay 24-7, 365 on the Voice America Business Channel. That does it for today. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.